0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 5th. Today, why some scientists are warning about a fourth COVID wave, and the things we take with us when we leave home.
1: It's a little bit like that movie Groundhog Day, right? Gonna come out and see a film. That's right, Chuckers. It's Groundhog Day.
0: Get up and take me. Reese Tebow covers the coronavirus for the Post.
1: We're in month like 14 of this, and we wake up again and we check the coronavirus case data, and it's like, all right, you know, here we go again. We're seeing cases on the rise uh, after weeks of decline.
0: And we were so hopeful for a while. Like the the graph was going down and down and down really steeply and things were looking great. And then you just started to see it slow down and then kind of tick back up little by little. And it is like a slow motion horror movie.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we've been through this before. You know, we know how it goes and we know how it ends. But I think the debate now is where does this go Next, we see the numbers ticking up and what experts are trying to figure out is whether this amounts to an actual fourth surge of the virus or whether, as Dr. Scott Gottlieb said on CBS yesterday, it's just pockets of infection. I don't think it's going to be a true fourth wave. I think we've probably delayed the point at which we can get this behind us for the summer, but we haven't forestalled that opportunity. I think with the rate of vaccination that we're uh, having right now, we're vaccinating, as you said, 4 million people a day. I think that's probably going to reach 5 million people a day. You're seeing outbreaks in schools and infections in social cohorts that haven't been exposed to the virus before. Maybe we're doing a better job sheltering. Now they're out and about getting exposed to the virus and they're getting infected. It sort of sounds like a semantic argument because either way you slice it, you know, the numbers are getting worse. But on the other hand, it is about where we go from here. And that's really important.
0: And from what we're seeing so far, how does this potential new surge compare with surges that we've seen in the past?
1: By the numbers, this latest spike in cases is on par with the surge we saw in July, the so-called summer surge. And if you remember in July, things seemed really bad. And so when we look at the numbers now, we tend to compare them to the winter, which, you know, we saw record shattering numbers of new cases. And so what's happening now looks sort of small compared to that high. But in fact, we're seeing right now about the same level of of new cases as we saw in last summer's surge.
0: And what are scientists saying and showing as evidence that this is, in fact, a fourth surge and something that we need to take incredibly seriously?
1: So on Sunday, Michael T. Osterholm, who is an advisor to President Biden's coronavirus task force, he predicted that this was the beginning of a phase globally that will bring the highest number of cases reported since the beginning of the pandemic. In terms of the United States, we're just at the beginning of this surge. We haven't even really begun to see it yet. We have had over the course of the past year a surges of cases that occur in the upper Midwest and the Northeast, and they subside. Then we see big increases in cases through all the southern Sunbelt states. Then it subsides in the Northeast and Midwest come back again. And we're now, I think, in that cycle where the... His argument- is that the pandemic so far has been cyclical. And he says, you know, we're at the beginning of that cycle now. He called the new case numbers being reported out of Michigan a wake-up call. When Michigan reported out 8,400 new cases, and we're now seeing increasing number of severe illnesses, ICU hospitalizations, and individuals who are between 30 and 50 years of age who have not been vaccinated.
0: And is that where we're seeing a lot of this rise in numbers in the Midwest?
1: Yeah, Michigan, my home state, is is actually experiencing the worst of this newest surge. It's being driven by a variant of the coronavirus first found in the United Kingdom. But infections are also rising in other Midwest states and in the Northeast, in Vermont and Maine. We really are seeing it in the Northeast and the Midwest.
0: And you mentioned the word variant, which I think has become the scariest word to so many of us. Do we have a sense of to what extent this surge is being driven by a variant of the coronavirus?
1: Yeah, I think we know that the variants are driving a lot of this surge. It's estimated that about a quarter of all new U.S. infections can be attributed to the U.K. variant. There's also a lot we don't know about the variants, particularly whether they can reinfect people who have already acquired immunity.
0: And I think we all saw the news over the last month or so. As the coronavirus cases were falling, we were hearing about states that were starting to lift some of their mandates around coronavirus precautions. Has that played a role in this new rise that we're seeing now?
1: Yeah. So this new surge, it has coincided with governors, mayors, county executives all across the country who are lifting their public health restrictions, like mask mandates and limits on indoor dining. And the experts say that that's no coincidence that we're seeing this new surge now as people are lifting these restrictions. You know, some of the notable restriction liftings happened in states like Florida, Texas, Mississippi, where Republican governors have lifted virtually all the rules But it's also happened to a lesser degree all across the country in states led by both Democrats and Republicans.
0: So then where does that leave us? Like, should we be taking the same precautions that we have been taking up until this point?
1: Yeah, public health experts would say a resounding yes.
2: When I first started at CDC about two months ago, I made a promise to you. I would tell you the truth, even if it was not the news we wanted to hear.
1: You know, CDC director Rochelle Walensky made this really direct warning last week. You know, one of those moves where you like crumple up the talking points and you just say, what's really on your mind?
2: I'm going to pause here. I'm going to lose the script and I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are and so much reason for hope. But right now I'm scared. We have come such a long way. Three historic scientific breakthrough vaccines and we are rolling them out so very fast. So I'm speaking today not necessarily as your CDC director and not only as your CDC director, but as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, to ask you to just please hold on a little while longer. I so badly want to be done. I know you all so badly want to be done. We are just Almost there, but not quite
1: yet. I think that's where a lot of the public health experts land here. It's remain vigilant. Do not let up on, on your mask wearing and on all of the things you're doing to to keep yourself and others safe.
0: Reese Thibault reports on the coronavirus for The Post. The story was produced by Alexis Dio. now, one more thing about the objects that we bring with us when we leave home. I remember
3: packing my bags and not knowing at all what to take. My bags were definitely way too heavy. My dad had to repack my bags <laughs> for me. And then when we were driving out to the airport, I think we had started driving away from the house. That was kind of my first like, okay, I'm really leaving home.
0: This is Yu Von Kit Kajorn. She's a community editor for The Post. And as President Biden plans an overhaul of immigration policies in the U.S., she has been thinking a lot about her own move to this country. That moment when she left her hometown of Chiang Mai in Thailand to come to the U.S., You has been working on a project with producer Lena Muhammad, asking post readers and listeners about the objects that people take with them when they leave their homeland and immigrate to the U.S. You came here in 2009 for school when she was 18. Lena moved with her family in 2012.
4: mentioned that you you packed your bags and your dad (laughs) repacked them and they were too heavy what did you pack and sort of like how do you like this is this is what I always think about like as an immigrant myself also I wonder if you feel the same like I wonder a lot about how do you pack when you're leaving a place and never returning how do you decide what to take and and what to not I think I probably packed a lot of things that I didn't
3: need. You know, I packed a bunch of different clothes. I wanted to bring all these different books that, of course, my dad took out. Um, I love reading. And I bought a lot of journals because I've always been writing in my journal since I was a kid. And medications. My dad is a doctor. He really wanted to make sure I had all the medications I needed. And I think a couple of items that I thought would be sentimental that actually didn't end up you know staying with me mm, like what mm. other mementos that you know i don't even remember anymore i didn't know that i would be gone for so long or that i would stay here for so long so i i i kind of packed just thinking about what that first year would look like
4: what about you yeah so i didn't move alone i moved with my family so my dad and my mom were there and i remember a lot of the bags were definitely spices <laughs> nice Things that we couldn't get in the U.S. or rather we were convinced that we just couldn't get in the U.S. or that they weren't the same. So like mama was super big on (laughs) on bringing her herbs and spices. And of course, I wanted to take like you, I wanted to take all these sentimental stuff I wanted to take pictures. I wanted to take my books. I wanted to take my journals as well, because I also journal quite a bit, or I used to rather. And my dad came into my bag and he was like, what is this? What's all this stuff? (laughs) He he took them out. Uh, He took the books out. He took the journals out. Oh, no. Yeah. The other thing that I I packed, sort of like you were saying, I didn't know at the time that it was going to be that it was going to mean that much to me, but um, I remember I packed two kufiyas. And a kufiya is a, like the traditional Arab scarf that men traditionally wear. And I remember I packed two. One was red and white with like a fancier tassel on it at the end, and one was black and white. So we were in Jordan, but we are of Palestinian descent. And so growing up a Palestinian in Jordan, it was always, you know, I mean, our existence was super politicized. And so the black and white one was a symbol for being Palestinian. And the red and white one was a symbol for being Jordanian. And so, like, for example, in school, we weren't allowed to wear them because they signified this deep, deep divide And as to not like stir up more trouble, we weren't allowed to wear them. Like So if I am Palestinian, (laughs) I wasn't allowed to wear my like black and white scarf. And, you know, if I were to wear the red and white one, it was like, oh, that's like a thing that only like native Jordanians wear. And I didn't even own one. So I like made it a point to go to the store, buy the red and white one for Jordan and to buy the black and white one for Palestine. And I packed them in the bag. And I remember my parents were like, what is this? What are you, what are you going to do with it? Like, because my family, we don't really wear it. And I was like, no, I want to take it. I want to take it. And I was like really adamant on taking them. Those two scarves, like those are things that are really meaningful to you right now, right? Yes. And I I actually wear them. I wear them all the time. It's funny because when when I packed them, I didn't imagine that they were gonna be (laughs) this meaningful to me. So they took on this like completely new meaning. They became not only a part of like me showing sort of the quote unquote the other that this is part of my culture and where i come from but i think they also became a way for me to reclaim both my identities both the palestinianness in me and the jordanianness in me i guess for me i
3: think i really relate to this idea that the things you bring from home can take a lot of different meaning over time and and not the ways that you expect so you know similarly i I packed this traditional dress that I had tailored right before coming to the U.S. because I knew that I would have to wear it for a performance. It was part of the scholarship where, you know, you have a fancy dinner and you perform uh, something that's from the country that you come from. So it's this blue shirt that's made of silk and has a slight shine to it. And there's an accompanying skirt. I wore that once back in 2009 and I've never worn it again it's a shirt that I keep in my closet I don't actually I don't wear it very much it's hidden in a box but you know I've kept it with me I've kept it after moving across the country several times from Connecticut to New York multiple times in New York I moved then I moved to San Francisco and now to DC and You know, every time you move, and I think this is something that a lot of people who are not from the US can relate to is that, you know, you have to, you don't, it's not like you have a home base where you can just kind of leave things. Mm. At least for me, I have to make a lot of choices about what I bring. And I'm always, I'm always shedding things as I go. You know, like you have to, you're always leaving something behind and you're always carrying everything with you. Right. And for whatever reason, I've decided that. You know, this shirt that I never wear is going to stay with me. And I've actually lost a lot of things. I've lost the skirt that it's supposed <laughs> to go with. I have no clue where it is. <laughs> but um, I've, I've made the conscious decision to keep this shirt because it just, it represents, you know, where I came from. It represents, you know, a place that's meaningful to me, even if Home has changed a lot. Um, and so it's my way to kind of hold on to that part of my identity.
0: Yu von Kitkejorn is a community editor for The Post, Lena Mohammed is a producer for Post Reports. We are interested in telling stories about the objects that connect people with their homeland. If you have moved to the U.S. from another country, we want to know, what's one object that you brought from home that you've always kept and why? Share your experiences with us by sending us a note at postreports@washpost.com, or better yet, record your story using the Voice Memo app on your phone and email that to us too. We'll put a link to the submission form in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svarnovsky. If you have thoughts on today's show or questions that you want answered about what's going on in the news, shoot us an email at postreports I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.